Praise the Lord. Thank you again, church, for being with us today as we dive into God's Word. We continue in our series in Mark's Gospel, um, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Would you hear now the Word of God? On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks and gave it, To them, and they all drank from it. And he had said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This morning, I want to talk to you about the fact that Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is the way in which God passes over our sin, and delivers us from the enslaving fear of death that was due our sin. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you've been merciful to us and gracious to us and shown us your loving kindness in Christ Jesus. Spirit of God, we ask this morning that that we would not just understand the Passover meal a bit better, Not, not just, God, that we would learn the details of the scripture as important as that is, but God, that you would lead us to worship Christ in the hearing of the gospel this morning. Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts and our capacity to behold Christ in the scripture and to take great delight in him and to worship him. God, lead us, motivate us, compel us to worship you well this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 12, of Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, Mark says that it's the first day of the week-long observance of the festival of unleavened bread. During this time, the Jewish people would rid their homes of leaven as an act of remembering God's deliverance of Israel from slavery back in Egypt. We've been reading of it recently as we've been working our way through the scriptures in Exodus And when he delivered them from slavery, there was no time to put leaven in the bread and wait for the bread to rise and then bake it. They had to go without the leaven to get any bread and sustenance as they escaped 
slavery. And so this annual remembrance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was serious business. As Moses records in Exodus chapter 12, verses 19 and following, seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. When we move forward into the New Testament, we see Jesus and Paul using this metaphor of leaven as as a metaphor for sins like hypocrisy and false teaching and the evil and immorality of Herod and the Pharisees. And we even see it representing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the sinful presence of unrepentant sinners in the church. There's been a a flagrant sinner in the church that said, well, we can't do anything about that. Who are we to judge? We don't want to worry about it. Just let them come on in and take the Lord's Supper just like everybody else. And Paul says, you better get the leaven out of the camp. Leaven represents the pervasive and enslaving power of sin that's got to be eradicated from our lives in order for us to have a right relationship with God and His people. This is why Mark tells us it's the first day, verse 12, of unleavened bread. It's the time when the Passover lamb is being sacrificed. Passover, the feast, sort of begins the week of unleavened bread. Each year, families would sacrifice a year-old, unblemished male Lamb, Exodus 12, 5. They would sacrifice it in the temple on the afternoon of 14 Nisan, which is a, uh, a Jewish month around the time of March or April. It's a lunar calendar, and so it doesn't quite match up with our calendar. But They would eat it at sunset in family gatherings in private houses. This is what Jesus' disciples are preparing for, the Passover meal. As we've read in Numbers, the people were expected to participate in the process. They were to bring the lamb and have the lamb sacrificed. It's not the Day of Atonement, which is entirely a priestly offering. It's the Passover, and there's, it's all in. All the people are involved in the process, and any who failed to participate were cut off from the people of God. Passover was not just about remembering God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, however. It's about much more than that. It was also about anticipating the lamb who would come. The lamb who would fulfill the promise of Passover and the son who would not be stained by the leaven of sin as we all are. The son and the lamb and the bread through whom God would forever pass over the sins of his people. The firstborn son would come and he would die to free sinners from slavery to sin and the fear of death. So to appreciate this morning... Jesus, our Passover, I think there's three things that we see in this text that we've got to do. First, we must recognize, we must recognize that God was in control, Jesus was in control of the events leading to his death. Secondly, we must not believe that God's sovereignty or his control or his power over all things removes our responsibility for betraying Jesus. And thirdly, we must take Christ's bodily death as our sure hope of everlasting life until He comes. First, we must recognize Jesus was in control of the events leading to His death. In verse 12, Jesus' disciples are asking where they should prepare for the, Lord's, for the Passover. But the next few verses reveal to us that it's really Jesus who is making the most important preparations. He's preparing His disciples and He's preparing us to recognize the cross means we can forever feast upon Him as our Passover lamb. 
We know the early church understood Jesus' death in this way because of what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5-7. He says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Jesus picks the Passover to reveal himself as our true and only hope for God to pass over our sins and the death that they deserves that they deserved. Edwards says this, Jesus is not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. There's no hint of desperation, no hint of fear or anger or futility on his part. Jesus does not cower or retreat as plots are hatched against him. He displays, as he has throughout Mark's gospel, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow the course he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. Jesus is in control of what he's doing. Jesus says, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, verse 13. In those days, a man carrying a pitcher of water would have caught their attention because typically, carrying water was left to women or to slaves. So they would have recognized this man. They would have been able to spot him in a crowd. Jesus is going to hang on a cross, church, and the world's going to mock him, but he is still God and still in control, and he demonstrates it through his supernatural knowledge of what's taking place. Do you remember when he came into Jerusalem at its triumphal entry and he makes arrangements to get the donkey? It seems just like that all over again. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen before it happens. He knows they will encounter this man carrying water. He knows the man will enter a house owned by someone who's going to recognize the authority of Jesus. Have you ever thought about what Jesus says in verse 14 to a man who owns the house? He says to that man, where is my guest room? Not where is your guest room that I could borrow, where is my guest room? During Jesus' public ministry, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, Matthew 8.20, but he still owned every room in Jerusalem. Indeed, he owned every single room in the whole world. In verse 14, Jesus calls himself teacher. He wants us to understand the significance of the Passover for training us and instructing us in who He is. And so He calls Himself Teacher. And He selects the perfect moment in the perfect classroom, this large upper room furnished with rugs needed for many people to recline and participate in the Passover meal. In verse 16, the disciples find what Jesus had predicted. They find it exactly as He said it would be. He has supernatural knowledge of the events leading Him to the cross. What happens at the cross, church, is by God's design. It is full of the hope and the promise of Passover, that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come, that the destructive and enslaving leaven of sin in our hearts is destroyed through the death of God's firstborn Son. But how would Jesus get to the cross as a willing sacrifice without just going there himself? I mean, Jesus doesn't go hop on a cross and nail himself to it, right? So, so how is it that this one who is sovereign and in control and fully aware that he's going to die for sin, how is he going to do that without doing it himself? Well, he's going to be betrayed. In a surprising twist, God would allow sin to be part of the undoing of sin. But we've got to be careful about that fact. 
Just because God permits a sin to be used to rescue us from sin does not mean that God is responsible for sin or for evil or that we can blame our sin on God. Just because there must be sin in order for Jesus to be worshipped as the one who rescues sinners doesn't make your sin justifiable. Are you tracking with me this morning? This is an important theological point and it's covered right here in Mark 14. So the second point we've got to get this morning about the cross and about Christ as our Passover church is that we cannot believe that the necessity of Christ's death removes our responsibility for His death. In verse 17, Jesus and His disciples make their way to the upper room to share together in the Passover meal. His betrayal is already in motion and Jesus knows it's already coming. How do we know that? Look at verse 18. As they are eating, Jesus doesn't say, isn't this lamb delicious? He doesn't say, hey guys, what's the weather forecast on your app say for tomorrow? No, Jesus says with force, truly, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Betray, the word betray there literally means deliver me over. To what? To death. One of you will deliver me over to death. Someone in the room eating with Jesus would hand him over. Suddenly, this great, wonderful celebration of God's deliverance in the past and anticipation of a deliverance that would come in the future, it turns sour. You ever been in a meal or a moment like that? Everything's great and somebody delivers some bad news right in the middle of the meal and nobody feels much like eating anymore. The room fills with grief. It fills with sorrow, with sadness, verse 19. It feels with that sinking feeling of inevitability that hits you right in the gut and almost takes your breath away. Suddenly the lamb doesn't taste so good. One by one, they ask Jesus, surely not me. Is it it I? Is it me? No, God, don't let it be me. It's the cry of a heart knowing That perhaps it could be me, but if it would be me, then stop it from being me. God, please don't let it be me. Church, this is how we should feel about our sin. It should grieve us. It should hit us in the gut. It should take our breath away. It is how we should feel about the many ways we have betrayed Christ. Every single Sin, no matter how great or small, is a betrayal of our King. When we really understand who Jesus is and what He did to rescue us, our sin should stop us in our tracks. It should lead us to evaluate our lives and to cry out to Jesus for His mercy that He would pass over our sin. We don't know how many people are in the upper room. But in verse 21, Jesus narrows the possible betrayers down to the twelve. Many times our picture of the Last Supper just shows Jesus and his disciples, but we know there are more people in the room than just Jesus and his disciples because he has to narrow the audience down and say, no, it's going to be one of the inner circle here. One, not only who's in the inner circle, but it's actually going to be, literally, the text says, the one who dips bread with him in the bowl. In other words, Jesus narrows the options down to Judas 
One who shares fellowship with Jesus as a friend will be the one who betrays him. Jesus' betrayal, church, is, is not a surprise. It doesn't catch God by surprise or God's Son by surprise. It's predicted all the way back in Psalm 41 verse 9. David says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Which is why verse 21 says that this betrayal of of God's Son is written about. If you were reading the Bible and reading it, understanding that it's about God's Son and His Passover lamb, you knew centuries before that He would be betrayed in in His being handed over to death. Verse 21, for the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. Well, that gets Judas off, right? It it had to happen and so we can forgive Judas, no. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It was sovereignly ordained. And yet Judas is personally responsible for his sin. It's right there in verse 21. As Aiken says, verse 21 is one of the most theologically significant statements in the whole Bible. The sovereignty of God. The power and the control of God. However it works, does not work in such a way that it cancels a sinner's responsibility for his sin. Do you hear me, church? You got that? God's sovereignty is no excuse for your rebellion. God allows Judas's willful betrayal of Jesus to become part of our deliverance. It is Judas, however, not God who is responsible for Judas's sin. God is ultimately responsible for getting Jesus to the cross, but Judas is ultimately responsible for betraying Jesus. Judas is not held accountable for something that God makes him do, but for a sin he willingly commits. Are are y'all here this morning, church? You tracking with me? The necessity of Jesus' death for sin does not remove our responsibility for the sin that caused his death. Did Judas hand Jesus over to die, or did God hand him over to die? Yes. Yes. The Father hands his Son over to be the firstborn who dies for sinners, and Judas willingly participates in that process. The necessity of Jesus' death for sin doesn't remove our responsibility for the sin that put Him there. To put God's sovereignty and man's freedom against one another is a dichotomy that the Bible does not support. Sinful men freely choose sin, and even the good we sometimes choose comes often with mixed Sinful motives. The witness of Scripture is consistent and it is clear. Sinners are entirely responsible for sin, but salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah 2.9 In the middle of a world stained by sin that humans willfully choose, God allows His Son to be delivered to the cross through Judas's willful sin so that we might be forgiven of our own betrayal. This does not mean, church, that we can figure out how to reconcile this and put it all together in a tidy little package. The church has debated and considered and asked about how these two things work together for 
Well, since Jesus has been raised from the dead, we've been talking about it. And I love what Danny Aiken says. In a divine mystery we will never completely understand in this life, we embrace the truth and the tension that divine sovereignty never cancels out human freedom and moral responsibility. Both are true. We affirm them both. Sinners cannot escape death unless they recognize their responsibility for their sin. We are all betrayers of Jesus. How have you betrayed Christ? Church, we're all Judas. In verse 19, everyone asks, is it I or surely not I? And yet by morning, they are all going to betray Jesus, not just Judas. The difference between Judas and us is that we still have an opportunity to repent of our betrayal of Christ. If Judas had not committed suicide, if if he had encountered the love of Christ at the resurrection, do you think God would have extended to him the same opportunity he extended to Peter to be restored and renewed and made whole? Yes, absolutely. The the advantage that we have this morning is that we can see in the text that we are Judas. And if we repent and we run to Christ, then he makes us born again to a new life with new desires and new affections for Christ. We want to serve him. But if we persist in trying to find our own ways to blame God for our plight and for our sin, Jesus says it would be better if we had not been born. We're all betrayers of Christ. And the way to conclude life knowing that it's very good that you were born is to make sure that you run to God. And let Him make you born again. Let Him give you new life in Christ. Let Him forgive your sin of betrayal. Let Him make you new and whole in Christ. How does that happen? It happens by what we see in verses 22 through 25. It happens when we take Christ's bodily death as our sure hope of everlasting life until He comes. In verse 22 through 25, we read of what I like to call the Last Supper, the Last Supper, and the First Supper all in one meal. It's the last, last, first supper. It's the last Passover that will ever be celebrated in anticipation of what God's going to do. Passover is looking forward to the ultimate Passing over of sin that can only happen through God's perfect spotless lamb, through the firstborn son, Jesus Christ. That's going to happen in just a day from now. And so it's the last time that we need to celebrate the Passover supper in anticipation of what God's going to do. Because God's doing it right now. Secondly, it's the last supper because it's the last supper that disciples eat with Jesus before his crucifixion. But church, it's also the first supper. And it's a supper that still has an open invitation. It's a supper that you can participate in today. It's a supper that you can participate in not only today, but until Christ returns. It's a supper with an open invitation to feast upon Christ 
the Passover lamb of God. The one who is our unleavened bread that we can take into our lives and he will rid us of the sinful leaven that we have on the inside. He is the spotless Lamb of God whose blood speaks a better word than the blood even of Abel. He is the Lamb to beat all lambs. He is the once for all sacrifice. Jesus is taking all the symbolism of the Passover and applying it to His own self. In Luke chapter 9, At the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking to one another. And it's really interesting what they talk about. They talk about the exodus to come in Jerusalem. The word that's used is exodus. Now why is that? Because exodus is the exodus of God's people out of slavery. And there's a greater slavery that we were stuck in. We were slaves to sin and to the fear of death. And Jesus was coming at Passover to be our substitute to deliver us from that slavery. Jesus shows us that only by taking Christ as our substitute in our place, the one paying the penalty, the price of sin, will God pass over our sin. It's the greatest exchange in the history of the world that ever has been or ever will be. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. While the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt led Israelites free from slavery. It's the death of God's firstborn son that sets free every people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation who will trust in him. Look at the gracious activity of Jesus in verse 22. He takes the bread. He blesses the bread. He breaks the bread. He gives the bread. In like manner, this is what the Father is doing with His Son. He is preparing His Son on the backdrop of Passover to be broken for us in a way that we could understand who He is. What we really need, church, is not unleavened bread, but lives which are freed from the leaven of sin. And the only way for that to happen is to take up Christ by faith, who is the bread of life. Church, when Jesus breaks the bread, the bread does not become Jesus. When Jesus holds the bread, he is not holding himself. He's holding bread. The bread is a symbol. It's a metaphor. Like the bread has been broken, he will be broken for sinners. Like beggars who would reach out and gladly take a morsel of bread, then we must reach out in faith and gladly take Take Christ's death in our place. The remarkable thing about this moment, church, is that Jesus is offering himself to a room full of people that he knows will abandon him. He knows in just 24 hours they're going to flee in fear and desperation and cowardice. And maybe this morning you say, I've been far from God. I've, I've run from God. I've been fearful. I've been a coward. I've been pursuing the world. I've been pursuing financial security rather than security in Christ. Whatever it is that you've been doing, you've got a Savior before you who says, take of me and be made whole. Drink of me and find freedom and deliverance from the chains of the world. 
If you are desperately stuck in sin and headed for death this morning, Jesus is inviting you to participate in this supper. He says, take me as your own. Trust in his whole person. That's what his body represents here. All that Christ is. His entirety without reservation. His sinless life in your place. His atoning death for you. And his resurrection, the assurance of life. When the Jews celebrated Passover... They partook of four cups of wine, representing the four promises of God in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. The promises were for rescue from Egypt, for freedom from slavery, for redemption by God's power, and for a renewed relationship with God. This third cup is where we are in the story. The third cup represents the promise of redemption by God's power. It comes at a point in the meal when the meal is almost completely eaten. And it's most likely this third cup that Jesus takes and he gives thanks for it before all of the people. And some of you may come from a tradition where you call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. The Greek word eucharisto is the word to give thanks for. That's that's why some traditions call this the Eucharist. The cup promising redemption is the cup that Jesus associates with His blood. There's no accident in that church because the life is in the blood and it is the life of God that is given to redeem many. Do you see that in verse 24? Christ will redeem many by giving His life for those who deserve death. The blood spilled by Christ is the blood of the eternal covenant. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20. It is being poured out for all who will drink of the Son's life. And oh, what a fulfilling cup it is to drink of Christ. For when you run to Christ in desperation and say, I'm a guilty, vile, desperate, betraying sinner and I need your blood to cleanse me, what you will find is the Holy Spirit of God will come into your life and He will apply Christ's death and resurrection to your life and He will fill you up to overflowing. In the covenant at Mount Sinai, the priests would sprinkle the blood of an animal against the people to cover them for a little while. But at Calvary, the blood does not just get sprinkled on us to shield us. It comes into us and changes us from the inside out, giving us new hearts to worship and praise and glorify Christ. Jeremiah 31. The Son of Man, who holds all authority, is also Isaiah's suffering servant, of whom God has said, I will allot him a portion with the great And he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. Church, our blood, our life was required of us because of our sin. So Christ shed his blood for our sin. His death in cold blood and resurrection in a glorified flesh and blood body counts for all times for all who will trust in him. The price of sin paid and the power to live for him given all through Jesus's blood. No more sacrifices of bulls and goats required because the blood of Jesus speaks a better word for all people in all times for in him. Are y'all ready church? Y'all ready to worship? For in Him we have redemption through His blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And in Christ Jesus, we who formerly were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. When we take Christ as our Savior and our God, we are justified by His blood and saved from the wrath of God through Him, Romans 5.9. For it is the blood of Jesus, God's Son, that cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. And it is the blood of His cross that allows us to have peace with God and one another, Colossians 1.20. Are you thankful for the blood of Jesus? And it is the culmination of this peace, this harmony, this unspeakable joy that we have when we give up on trying to cure our sin ourselves and instead run to Jesus. It is this cup of peace that Jesus doesn't drink. The fourth cup is the cup of the peace of God's people in harmony with God forever and ever. And Jesus doesn't drink that cup. Instead, he says, truly I say to you, I won't drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Why? Why doesn't he drink that cup? Because there's one more cup he's got to drink before any of us can really know that cup. He's got to drink down dry the wine cup of the wrath of God. The burning anger of God against sin is fierce. And Christ will go to the cross and drink down every drop of it. There's no place in the world that God's wrath does not still burn against sin except in Christ. And this morning, if you have not come to Christ, if you've not yet trusted Christ, then God's wrath is still poured out against you. The anger of God is against you, but in Christ it has already been consumed, it has been eradicated, and there's no more wrath for you in Christ. And so if you run to the one who drank down the wine cup of God's wrath for you, then Jesus says, I'm coming again for you. I'm coming again to drink with you again in the new heavens and in the new earth, and we will be together and you will be at peace with God forevermore. So this morning I want to encourage you, church, do you belong to Christ? Have you really taken of his body and of his blood as your only hope and your sure hope for life everlasting with Christ your King? Church, it's too late. It's getting too late to fool around with God. He is coming. And he's coming to judge the quick and the dead. And when we drink with him in the new heavens and the new earth, I want you to know that you know because you are feasting with him now, you will drink with him when he returns. If you don't know that assuredly this morning, then as we stand and sing in just a moment, I want to invite you to come and take up Christ by faith. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we need you. We we thank you that there is power, saving power in the blood of Jesus. God, that the death we deserve to die, you've done it. That the life you have by resurrection is a life we can know that we can have and share in forevermore. God, if there be one this morning who doesn't know they belong to you, I pray, God, that you would grant them the freedom and the liberty to come to cry out to you in faith. 
and know the joy of having their sins forgiven. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.